Welcome to the Brilliantly Resilient Podcast. What's your train wreck? Everyone has one. The question is, are you going to live there or are you just visiting? Let's check in with Mary Fran and Kristen to learn how to come through not broken, but brilliant. Transform every week of yours with our brilliance bit that will deliver right to your email inbox. Sign up for it at brilliantlyresilient.net and keep living brilliantly resilient. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Brilliantly Resilient Live. We have someone who is of great interest to me uh, with us today, Candace Platter. I'm going to read you a little bit about her bio. Candace is an addictions therapist. She is in private practice. She specializes in working with the family and the loved ones of the addict. And those of you who know our Brilliantly Resilient Stories know that that is a personal uh, situation of mine with my son, David. Um, Candace is a former opioid addict with 34 years clean and sober. Congratulations on that. And learned that overcoming addiction is a, this is huge, is a family condition. Everyone in the family is affected and everyone needs to heal. The addicts and their loved ones need to understand their dysfunctional behavior. And yes, the loved ones have dysfunctional behavior too. So Candace, thank you so much for joining us today. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Yes. So I, I want to talk right away about the title of your book, because again, it encompasses everything. And the title of your book is Loving an Addict, Loving Yourself. Yes, the this, is the, this is the cover. Just the so. top 10 survival tips for loving someone with addiction. And make no mistake, those of you who yeah, have yeah. never dealt with an addict may not know this, but those of you who have know this, it is about survival. Yes, it's about survival. It's about recovery. It's about empowerment. It's about all of that. So tell us a little bit, if you would, about your backstory, about how you came to this kind of work and at what point your realization, and thank God for it, your realization sparked that this is not just an addict issue. Mm. Yeah. Well, um, I'll do my best to nutshell my story. (laughs) Um, So uh, many, many years ago, when I was in my early 20s, I went out for lunch with a friend and it didn't take long for me to become violently ill after that. And we both thought that that was uh, food poisoning, but I never got better, Mm. not for a very long time. And I was eventually... I just want to apologize for my voice um, because it's a little hoarse and I've got some tea that I might sip on. (laughs) Go for it. (laughs) Um, So this was in the early 70s and I was finally diagnosed with Crohn's disease. Hmm. And uh, that was a new disease on the block. Mm -hmm. Uh, The doctors did not know much about it. They kept telling me that this was all in my head and uh, it was not in my head. But you know, Crohn's for most people know now what Crohn's is, but back then they didn't. And it's a, it's a very painful and debilitating um, uh, gastrointestinal disease. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an inflammatory bowel disease. And because they didn't know what to do for me, they just kept throwing more and more addictive medications at me. Lots of prescriptions for Valium and codeine and um, Oxycontin and morphine and, you know, all of that helped, but I think they unleashed something horrible upon me by not knowing what they were doing. Mm. And I, I, I like to, I like to kind of credit them by saying addiction wasn't on the radar back then, certainly not the way it is now. Unfortunately, there are still doctors who are doing that kind of prescribing and that, uh, that's an irritant to me because I know what that can do. Where that can lead, sure. Yeah. So for years and years and years, 15 years, basically, I took all of those medications as prescribed and they were prescribed to me every week, every month, whenever I needed it, go back to the doctor, get another prescription. So it was daily use of what I later discovered was opioids. Mm. 
Hmm. And benzodiazepines, which in some cases can be uh, fatal. Hmm. So I'm, I'm lucky that I lived through that. Um, but those, those substances, I also used a lot of pot because I liked it. I liked mm-hmm. how it felt. Uh, it helped the shame, the stigma of that kind of disease. Mm. And, you know, I, I, didn't, I didn't understand then what was happening to me, but all of those substances are depressants in the human system. So fast forwarding 15 years of daily use of pretty much all of it, mm. I became so depressed that I was in fact suicidal and not sure if I want to live anymore. Mm-hmm. So I think that was, that was a real wake up kind of point for me. Um, I didn't have the energy to really wake up at that point. But when I look back, that, that was a really, that was a real turning point for me because I didn't know what was going on, but I was afraid I might kill myself. Well, and you know, I think I think everybody needs to, to understand here, and, and we're becoming more aware of it, but you have to be an advocate for yourself and for your own health. And as you said, back then, I mean, if a doctor said it, it was like God came down and said, do this. Exactly. You know, just did it. But right. I, I think being able to ask those questions and asking them of the people who are in charge, air quotes here, um, yeah. is really important. And it's just unfortunate that back then you didn't know that, but but now that you're sharing that message, that's something people need to hear. Yeah. You know, like they said in the 1960s, question authority. <laughs> so we need to question authority. Yeah. <clears throat> but for somebody like me, it was such a relief to have the physical pain gone mm-hmm. that or not gone, but better. Um, so it was uh, it was something that I just continued to do because. I did. And I, anybody's body would get addicted to the, all of those substances, including pot, because pot's an addictive substance. A lot of people like to say, oh, it's just pot. Um, and, and so by the time I felt like I was going to take my life, I was basically an addict. And I didn't know that. I didn't know that. So, so what is your life? Let me just pause for a second. What, what was happening in your, in your life at that point where you come to this fully depressed and suicidal moment? Are you working? Are you not working? Are you out in the world? Yeah, I, I was quite functional. I, I'm not mm. quite sure how I did that. Um, mm. But I'm, I'm a little bit of an expert at putting one foot in front of the other when I absolutely have to. And now I just kind of like doing that. I like mm. living that way. But yes, I was working. I had a cushy government job. Hmm. I had a, a place to live. I had a car to drive, you know, all of that stuff. But when I realized that I was at a really low bottom, as they say in addiction circles, um, a lot of that changed. Because what I did was I, I reached out for help. That was the, the choice I made. That was the decision I made, hmm. obviously, because I'm still here, you know. Um, and I'm very grateful that I did. And somebody on the other end of the phone at a crisis center Hmm. really helped me, uh, empowered me by telling me that I had a choice about all of this, which I had never thought about before. So I, um, under the advice of a psychiatrist that I saw once, uh, I, um, I voluntarily signed myself into one of the psych wards here in Vancouver. I'm in Vancouver, Canada, which mm. is just one of the best places in the world. I it's think beautiful there. Beautiful here. Um, and so I went into the psych ward, uh, never expecting anything like that would ever happen to me. And mm. there I was. And I, I was relieved to be there because it's like, take my clothes. I'm not sure what I'm going to do to myself. So while I was there, I received some counseling that I really needed to get. And I also met some people who were going to Narcotics Anonymous, a 12-step program that was meeting every day across the street at the nurse's residence. So I started going with them. Mm. And uh, that, that was the second piece of, of the beginning of my recovery from this. So, yeah. so your story is 
is somewhat different in that most people think that, and, and, and it's often the case, most people think that addicts just choose to use drugs and, and some of them do, but, but they don't choose to become addicts. Like right. that's, that's the distinction that people need to, to understand. When, when yeah. my son first started experimenting with Percocets and then oxycodone and all that stuff, he didn't say to himself, I'm gonna take this and become an addict. Right. There's there very often, and in your case, it was a physical thing, but most times addicts are trying to alleviate pain. Whether I think all times they are. Yeah. It, whether yeah. it's psychological or physical, they're trying to alleviate some sort of pain or fill some kind of hole in themselves, but they don't choose to become addicts. So at, at the point that you were in, in the institution, how did they, did they, you know, now they talk about, they detox you. Did they detox you? How did you, how did you get away from the daily medications and then get on a healthier path with a physical condition? Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, it wasn't easy. Mm-hmm. No, they did not detox me. They continued to give me the pain medications and the Valium in the oh. hospital. Um, with, uh, some of those medications, you have to detox slowly. But after, after I was in the psych ward, I went into a detox for about three weeks to get off of those substances. When I was, um, while I was going to Narcotics Anonymous, I was in detox as well. Mm, okay. Oh, man, getting off those substances was really hard. I didn't know my own name for quite a while, you know, because everything I was using those substances for came back in full force when I stopped taking them. Yeah. That's, I would have to yeah. imagine that the fear of going back to all that physical pain had to have been huge. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I will say that for a while I had some medication that would help me with the pain. I mean, you know, thank God for these substances because so, sometimes we need them, but there's a line between use and abuse Mm. And I had been abusing, mm. but unknowingly to you. I mean, Un- you were unknowingly you were, you were abusing them, but only because you were prescribed them. That yes, wasn't, and I, I was a good girl then. <laughs> but I was told I'm not anymore. But I used to be. Yeah, and and you know, I want to say something to what you said about your son. You know, not it's like nobody signs up for addiction 101. Gee, let's be an addict. That'll be fun. Nobody mm-hmm. does that. In fact. Most people who become addicted think that's never going to happen to them. It's going to happen to the other guy. It won't happen to me. I can handle it. And then they can't. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So, but, but the, 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 play, the point that we need to get to, and as an addict myself, even though I haven't used in a lot of years, I remember, I know that we addicts, we, when we're in active addiction, we know that something is wrong with our lives. We know our lives are a mess. We look around at other people's lives and they're working and having, you know, they're in families, they're healthy, they have children, they're living a life, you know? Um, That doesn't, that's not the case with people who are in active addiction. We give up a lot of that stuff to be in active addiction. But then isn't isn't there a cycle then that perpetuates itself? Then there's a shame at feeling like you're an addict and you're not where everybody else is. So then you take more to alleviate. Sometimes, yep. But there's a point at which when we know, when we can really see that our lives are really a mess, that we're struggling, that's when we can make a different choice. That's where choice comes in. And, and this is why I had a difficult time with 12-step programs, which I think are amazing in many ways. But one of the things they, they teach is that uh, addiction is a disease, first mm. of all, which I don't believe. I have a disease and I know the difference. I mm. can't just get rid of Crohn's. I can get rid of addiction. Um, it's not, so I don't see it as a disease. I don't see it as something I'm powerless over Hmm. next month. I'm going to be 35 years clean and sober. Hmm. I am not powerless over this condition, you know? Um, and they teach that relapse is a normal, natural part of recovery, which I don't, I know it doesn't have to be because it wasn't for me. And I know it isn't from, for many other people. We, we get clean, we stay clean. 
So mm. relapse isn't a normal, natural part of recovery. And I think to tell families, which is what I work with mostly now, um, to tell addicts or families, you've got a disease that you're powerless over and you're going to relapse. Hmm. Like that's the most non-empowering thing you could ever tell someone. Right. Yeah. There's no, no responsibility happy. in there. Cause I'd have to imagine it was a, a healthy dose of taking responsibility. Healthy dose. Yeah. yeah. And it's dangerous to tell people that too. I mean, people are dying out there left, right and center because they think they have to use, they don't have to use. Nobody has to use. But so, but that being said, and mm-hmm. again, I'll circle back to the whole detox and all of that kind of a thing. The, the, the physical challenges that people go through for detoxing and all that kind of stuff, that dissuades a lot of people. And that's maybe where they get that idea. And maybe it's not so much that they have to use, that they're terrified of what the detox process is going to be. And then they yep. look at how far they've fallen and just the idea of having to rebuild, which is an incremental process is really challenging for them. So yes, I want to bring this around to how does the family fit into all this? Because my son will say, you know, I credit him with making the choice and making the decision because if he was the, not going to do that, forget it. He was the only one on the planet that could have made that decision for himself. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Nobody else can make it for any exactly. of us. Yeah. But that being said, then, how does the family, and this is one of the things that you wanted to talk about, I know, how does the family support and not enable? Because when, you know, as a parent with a drug crazed kid, there were times when I was like, fine, I, I just, I don't even care because I can't deal with this right now. Yeah. You know, and, and, and you know that that's enabling, but there's also a part of you that goes, this is self-preservation for me. So it's a really weird balancing act when you are trying to support and love an addict and trying to maintain your own sanity and do the right thing. It's so hard. It's so hard. And I'm sorry that you and your son both had to go through that and anybody else in your family that was going through it with you. Um, It's a very hard thing. There is recovery available that can happen. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a number of a number of ways to look at this and the way that I like to see it more than anything is to say, to be able to say as a family member, to be able to say to your addict, I love you. We love you. We love you so much. And because we love you so much, we're going to stop doing things that are helping you stay stuck in addiction. We understand now we're getting some help and we understand now that we've been doing some things that haven't been good for you. And we're sorry about that. Mm-hmm. Like what child doesn't want to hear an apology from his parents <laughs> or anything, you know? Isn't so, true? <laughs> yeah. So we're, we're sorry about that. We realize we've been making some mistakes and, and it's because we love you so much. We don't want to see you in addiction. We don't want it for you. It's tearing us up. It's tearing my heart out. You know, I think addicts need to hear because addicts in active addiction, when they're practicing their addiction, they're very self-absorbed. They're just focused on themselves. And I think it's important in so many ways, therapeutically, for sure, that addicts start to understand how they're affecting other people, how they're affecting the people around them. So this isn't fun for us either, right? And, And so... Because we love you so much, we're going to stop supporting your addiction. We're not going to, but what we will do, what we will do is when you're ready to get some help and to be in, in some kind of recovery, we will be there for you. We will support your recovery in all the ways we can but we will no longer support you in, in active addiction. It's not going to happen anymore. And it's because we love you. It's not a punishment. It's because we love you. We want to do right by you. Well, and I by have us. To say, the, the words that you're saying, um, first of all, I'm so relieved because I did not have a therapist at the time. And I'm listening to one saying the words that I actually said to my son, unbeknownst Yay. to anything. But I did say to him, I, you're my son. I love you. I will follow you to the edge. 
but I will not follow you over. I will not let you take your father or your sisters with you. And you can choose to live the life that you want. It's, it's your choice. But if you're going to live like this, you can't live it with us in your lives. Exactly. Exactly. That's the price of staying. That's the consequence of staying in active addiction. So you set, I think the most healthy boundary you could ever set. Bravo to you. Because well, and you know, it was only after terrible, terrible desperation and trying everything else. So yeah. I think the message that you're delivering is so important for people to say early on, don't wait until that time when you just can't take another second, recognize that there is some choice making here for yeah. all of us in that position. And, and one of the reasons to do it as early as possible First of all, tell yourself the truth. If you think something's going on with anybody in your family, it probably is. So tell yourself the truth with that. Reach out for some help because addiction is progressive. It doesn't get better without some kind of help. Mm-hmm. It gets worse. And, and there's also something called tolerance in addiction, uh, which means that the more you use, the more you have to use to get the same kind of hit. Your body tolerates mm-hmm. a certain amount. And then, oh, I'm not getting the same high I used to get. I better use more. And that's how people die. Mm-hmm. That's how people die from addiction. So the sooner you can intervene with this and start setting those boundaries with a consequence that means something to the addict, because if you just set a boundary with no consequence, it's kind of meaningless. They just roll their eyes and wait for you to go away and they do what they're going to do. Mm-hmm. There has to be some kind of consequence like you can't do that here. You can't be part of this family if that's what you're going to do. Something like that. I have a TEDx talk that uh, talks a lot about this. So if people are interested in, in that, you can just look me up in TEDx. So- Let me ask you from a different point of view. I mean, all of this makes perfect sense and it's phenomenal for parents dealing with the children in addiction, adults dealing with each other. What do you say to kids that have the parent in in addiction? Yeah, Um, it depends on how old the kids are. You know, if there's if they're younger and they've got any other family member that they can go to to talk about this that one of the biggest problems around addiction is that, again, the stigma of it, right? Mm -hmm. So people don't talk about it. And children are probably told not to talk about it. So Mm -hmm. that's a problem. But if anybody's listening, if you're a child out there listening, and and you're kind of young, um, please go find somebody you can talk to a teacher, another family member, your best friend's mother, somebody, Mm -hmm. you know, that you can talk to. Um, And because sometimes, sometimes other um, people need to intervene to help parents get better. But if you're an adult child and your parents are, are into addiction, one or both, then the same things have to apply. But they'll, they'll just be a little different because you can't kick your parents out of their own home. Mm-hmm. Like That won't happen. But, but you can say to them, I'm not going to be in your home. I'm, or if, if you live at home, I'm not going to have conversations with you when you're drunk or stoned or both. I'm not going to be here with you when you're doing that. I'm also not going to support you when you go to the, to the casino and you lose all your money for rent. Mm. I'm not going to support you in those behaviors because I don't want that for you. I love you. I'm see. Uh, I'm tired of seeing you struggle and suffer. And I don't want, I'm learning how to respect myself. Self-respect is so important. I'm learning how to respect myself. And I don't want to support these kinds of behaviors for anybody, but especially not for you. So the same kinds of things have to apply sometimes in a different way. Mm. You know, I always said, um, and I say this all the time, and it goes back to a point that you said about telling yourself the truth. Um, mm-hmm. I've said so many times that the, the best two companions of a crisis like this are distraction and denial. And for so long, 
when David was starting with the, you know, drinking, and then that led to the pills and then so on and so on until finally it was heroin. It was, there were periods of time, and this happens with addicts, there are periods of time where they're completely out of their minds. And then it's like they sense when you're at that breaking point and they pull back and all of a sudden it's, I'm really sorry, I'm just going through a hard time, everything will be fine. And then it's okay for a while. So yep. you deny that there is a big problem and you distract yourself with life because it's easier that way. So yep. this point about tell yourself the truth, is yep. it true? You have to, you can't face anything unless you know what it is you're facing. That's and absolutely correct. That self-respect piece where... I think the reason people have a problem with that is when you love someone, you don't expect them to treat you badly. Well, addicts treat everybody badly, including <clears throat> themselves. So yeah. it's very hard to recognize and accept and acknowledge that behavior from someone you love and who you know loves you. But yeah. in that state of mind that they are, you're so right about that self-respect piece. You have to say, no, I'm not putting up with this. Yeah. So if I can, if I can speak to that for a moment. Mm -hmm. In many, many cases, I don't know if this was the case for you, Mary Fran, but in many cases, loved ones of addicts are codependent. It's a buzzword in the addiction field. And I like really simple definitions. So my definition of, of codependency is when you put other people's needs ahead of your own on a fairly consistent basis. So you, you're dealing with other people's needs, yours goes on the back burner, and coupled with the codependency is an aspect of people pleasing. Mm -hmm. And for many people, especially women, some men, but especially women, we learn at a very early age how to people please. This is what we're trained to do. We're brought up to do. We're conditioned that way. So by the time you're, you're dealing with addiction, you're dealing, you've already said yes many times when you should have and wanted to say no, because you were denying and you were minimizing and you were distracting. When, you, when you're a people pleaser, the hardest thing for you is going to be dealing with conflict. People pleasers hate conflict. They hate mm -hmm. it. And I'm a recovering people pleaser. I don't do it anymore very often because it really that you're feels recovering, <laughs> recovering a, people, please. Sir. I'm we a recovering get there. Yay. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> oh yeah. You can definitely get there. And, and, and that's about self-respect, which I can address in a minute, but you know, the, the thing, the thing for um, loved ones, for family members to do is if they can work with somebody like me, we can get underneath that too, because that's an addictive behavior. You're saying yes when you really want to say no because you're afraid. You think it's going to make you feel better. You don't want to hurt the other person, but you probably are hurting the other person by not challenging them and not confronting them and not telling them what you really see. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's 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 one of those, you know, icky kinds of things that so so the loved ones need to learn how to respect themselves um, in order to set the kind of boundaries with the kind of consequences that need to be there for the addict to sit up and take notice and say, oh, this is changing. Maybe I'm not going to be able to get away with this anymore. And to, to help, to help, to help the addict become less comfortable in their addiction. That's the goal. Hmm. Interesting. If you're, a pe if you're a codependent people pleaser, that's a mouthful, but if you are <laughs> and you're saying yes, instead of no, when you know you really want to say no, then, you know, you're making life very comfortable for the addict on paper. They have it made, you know, hmm. who's they, a lot of them don't pay any rent. They live in the family home. They get angry. They punch a hole through the wall or they push shove the you know terrible behaviors somebody's maybe doing their laundry maybe buying their food and cooking their food and like you want to come do that for me okay <laughs> you know like why should they change anything mm -hmm. and what we know for sure two things one is if nothing changes nothing changes hmm. and we also know 
that an enabled addict doesn't recover because why should they? Right. When you're an when you're enabling an addict, that's you know the definition of that is when you're basically saying yes when you shouldn't be and keeping them comfortable. Let me ask you this again with with kids if 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 addiction isn't a disease what is it is it a personal quality is it a habit what is it that that so many children of addicts become addicts also or families where it's prevalent a lot through siblings and whatnot what is that yeah. element pain suffering mm-hmm. trauma when you're a child i mean i grew up in an addicted home too when you're a child in that environment, you don't really feel like anybody's there for you because when you're in addiction, you cannot be emotionally available to anybody else. That's the self-absorption of it. Hmm. And so children grow up in that environment, whether, whether it's drugs and alcohol or whether it's gambling or it's watching porn on the computer or it's eating too much or it's overspending, the focus is on those things when you're in addiction. So the parents are there. The parents are not with the children. And that is very traumatic for children. Hmm. So they have a hole inside of them too. And when they find the friend group that welcomes them and gives them some weed at the age of 10, right? And it takes away the pain, right? It it takes takes away away the pain. I'm part of the group. I love some of them will just love the feeling. Some won't. Some will start to feel really paranoid on weed, you know, but some of them will love it. And then it graduates into other things and it doesn't stop until there's help available for people in most cases. And would you say that that I'm just thinking of how many families are dealing with the the addict in the family and then the kids. And, and you're, you're right. It, it drives me crazy when people say, well, this is a disease and you are prone to the disease. So let's remove alcohol yeah. from your life. And I'm like, that is not, that's not the person having responsibility. What would you say then? Is it a, a therapist? Is it a coach? What, what, what can we do for the kids of these, the children of the alcoholics to help them navigate this? So they don't fall into the same, if they are experiencing the pain, the same habit of medicating it. Well, again, what I would, it's such a great question you're asking. And what I would say is, is that it's, it requires a holistic approach. It's not just working with the kids. Like it's not just working with the addict. You have to work with the family. Otherwise it isn't going to change in mm-hmm. most cases. Right? So, but we, we need to work with the children. And I, I think for me, the difference between coaching and counseling is that coaching um, basically you're looking for solutions, you know, try this, do that. Um, counseling gets underneath, gets kind of down and dirty with these things and, mm. and gets to the real issue of what's, of what's going on, gives people a place to talk about that. So I think children who have felt very abandoned and very alone because the parents are involved with addiction really need somebody to talk to and, and be respected and be heard and, and to help them feel like they're not crazy. Mm. The other thing with children in these families is they don't know that there are so many other families with children who, who are going through exactly the same thing because nobody talks about it. Shh, nobody talks right. about it. So these kids feel really alone they feel really um, not good enough. They can't invite friends home. They don't know when, what's going to happen when, when that other shoe's going to drop. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a really hard situation for children. They need somebody that will hold their hand through this, you know, and respect mm-hmm. them. Um, the parents also need to know that, you know, there are consequences for you doing this addiction You've got children that you're not looking after, and it's very possible you might lose your children until you can get yourself clean and actually be living a life that's better for them as well, because this is not acceptable. This is not negotiable. It's not acceptable. Children should not grow up in a home like this, and if that's what you're providing, the consequence may be that you lose your children for a while until you make a decision. 
you know, no. you're putting you're putting your addiction ahead of your children. If that's the choice you continue to make, you'll have the consequence of that choice. So those are all situations where the children are perhaps there another parent can intervene. I've seen this happen a number of times where a, a kid is is lives in a house like that. And as the kid gets older, the addicted adult parent, whatever, despite the best efforts of anybody else, almost invites that kid to be part of their addiction. They'll mm-hmm. give them alcohol. They'll ask yep. them to smoke weed. Like, how do you, if you're the other parent who wants to keep your kid away from that, how do you do that? Because the child who feels neglected wants that, that kinship with the other parent who's, who's yep. the addict. And if that parent's you know, offering to include them, even though it's something that's terrible, how do you approach the kid who's kind of of age to maybe make their own decisions and go, dude, don't go there. Like, what yeah. do you say? Yeah, I, you know, that's a really complicated question and a really complicated answer. And I, I don't have answers for everything. I wish I did. That's one of those situations. But, you know, I think, I think, you know, let's say it's a husband um, kind of getting sexist here, but just for the benefit of this conversation, mm-hmm. let's, let's say it's a husband who's using or drinking and encouraging the children to do that with him. The wife needs to be able to get some support for herself so that she can say to the husband, you're hurting our child. You're hurting our child. And I'm not going to put up with that anymore. Mm. And that's where self-respect comes in because of, you know, Dr. Phil, um, who sometimes says some useful things. Uh, one of one of uh, the things he one of the things he said is that um, we teach other people how to treat us. Mm-hmm. And if you're if you're let's say the wife in that situation, the mother in that situation, and you're allowing that to continue, why should it stop? If you're not standing up and saying no. I'm not going to do this with you anymore. I'm going to find some help. I'm going to find a way to fix this. I don't want to see my child go down the road of addiction. If you want to do that, you're an adult, you can make your choice, but I'm not going to watch this happen. Mm. Uh, Until a person feels the respect within themselves to be able to say, I'm good enough for this. I feel really empowered to do this, regardless of what any consequences might be. I know what's right. I know what I need to do. And the way to develop self-respect is only one way. And, and we each need to do it for ourselves. And we can't buy it at the 7-Eleven. You know, mm-hmm. we can't buy it. It's not bottled. Um, the way to, to, to develop self-respect is to do the next right thing. Mm-hmm. And the next right thing after that. And the next right thing after that, and pat yourself on the back for those kinds of things and work with somebody to develop that. Because if you're a spouse of somebody who's addicted and is trying to lure your child or children into addiction, ew, (laughs) really. And so you need to do something about that. And and really what's going to happen is that you'll need to change what you're doing first your husband isn't or your son or whoever isn't going to come to you and say thank you so much for setting healthy boundaries for me oh yeah wouldn't that just right? be <laughs> yeah like that's not going to happen so the person who is watching this you know the loved one who's watching this happen is almost invariably always the one that needs to start changing first mm. Good advice. I think that that's- and, it's, and I just want to say one more thing, if I can. It's not, it's not fun and it's not easy to do that. But watching what you're watching is worse. Hmm. There are yeah. two kinds of pain. There's the kind of pain that goes on and on and on and on, you know, and on. And then the second kind of pain that hurts it's painful. It hurts. But there's a light at the end of the tunnel if you do the next right thing and the next right thing after that. Mm-hmm. 
And that's, that's what I wish for your audience. Anybody who's listening or knows somebody in this situation. That it's you, like, it's, that you, it's like that um, expression. When you're going through hell, keep going, keep going. Yeah. Otherwise you get stuck in hell. Yeah. Like who well, wants to I get think, stuck in hell? I yeah. think to your point um, of you have to be the one to change at the end of the day, that's really all any of us have control over. That's exactly so, right. So you have to make those decisions, perhaps starting with yourself and saying what's healthy for me. And then I think maybe that leads you because if you, if you are, if you love an addict, you want the best for them. So if you say what's healthy sure. for me, and the problem is that they are not healthy for you right now, the next decision that you will make will hopefully be leading them towards health. What can I do to help them? Right. Instead of what can I do to enable them and give them 20 bucks and let them live at home and be disrespectful and all that stuff that you've been allowing them to do. That's the pain that goes on and on and on and on and on and on. Mm. Now, here's a question, though, for you. Um, and oh, yeah. I, having experienced this, I know what this feels like. Yeah. You know, my daughters said to me many times, you have to throw them out. You have to throw them out. You have to throw them out. And, and in the back of my head was, if I throw him out, he's going to die. Yes. Mm. So that, I'm not saying I'm not saying yes, he's going to die, but I'm saying no, yes, that's, that's what you would that's think. That's the feeling. That's, that, the that's, that's what you think. That's that's the sure. feeling. You you think to yourself, oh, oh my God, if I take my eyes off of him, he's going to die. Right. So that decision, and I knew I would have said it to anybody else. Anybody else who was going through what I was going through, I would have said to them, get him out of your house, get him out of your house. Yeah. But this is my child. I'm sorry, I still get emotional about it. Who? Yeah, that's okay. That's okay. Who, uh, you know, I, I could have been sending out to die. Like, how do yeah. you get there? How do you, how do you do that? Okay. So the thing to understand is that even if you have your eye on him pretty much 24-7 and he's in your house and he's living there and he's, if he's, in so much active, I mean, if he's using something like heroin, <coughs> excuse me, which I didn't gonna, know at the time, but I did, I do now. Yeah. But you know, whatever behaviors he's exhibiting are going to get worse and worse and worse. And just because you have your, your eyes on him and just because mm -hmm. he's living in your house does not mean he won't die of addiction. Mm. This is a scary thing to say to an audience. It doesn't, it doesn't mm -hmm. mean that he won't die in your home. Maybe through an overdose or drugs that are cut with fentanyl or, or by his own hand because he's so depressed in his own life because his life's going nowhere. And I, I really, I know and believe that there are other boundaries that can be set before you have to get out of here. You have to leave. Mm -hmm. That's the that's the last straw kind of thing. But, if, but the boundary is something like, if you're going to live here, mm -hmm. if you're an adult child and you're living in my house, you're a guest now. Mm -hmm. this, is not, this is not something that's owed to you. You're a guest in my house. I pay the rent or the mortgage and I expect you to contribute. I expect you to contribute to the rent or the mortgage. I expect you to contribute to buying food for the house, maybe paying some of the utilities, maybe cooking a few meals every once in a while. So you're going to need to, you're going to need to step up. And if you're not getting, if you're getting money from the government, don't get me started on that because <laughs> the enabling that happens that way, that addicts are paid to be addicts, to continue mm. their addiction, crazy. Mm -hmm. Um, but if you're getting money from the government, then you get less or you keep less. You give some to me mm -hmm. and you can put some of that money in a bank account. If you don't need it right now, you can put it in a bank account for when he's recovering and wants to go back to school or something. Mm. Right. But we expect you to shape up. If you're living here, this is what you need to do. And this is what you're not allowed to do. And and you work with those boundaries. And if they're not willing, or I was going to say able, but they're able, if they're not willing, if they don't make a choice to um, abide by the rules of your house, then maybe they're going to have to leave. 
but it's not, it doesn't have to come. That's not the first thing we do is get the addict out. Right. I unless it's back. unless it's so bad that you just can't stand right, it anymore. Right. And there's yeah. situations yeah. you have, but I want to bring the conversation as we as we wind up here back to your word choice. Yes. And, and that's so important that we all realize that in some seemingly impossible situations, there are still choices. Yes, I think we're a choice in every nanosecond of our lives, you know, but I know there are people who have said to me, this is tough love, you know, with disdain. This is tough love. You're just spouting tough love. And I say, you're right. I am. That's exactly what I'm spouting. Tough love has gotten a very bad reputation. Mm -hmm. Tough love is love. And sometimes it's the most loving thing you can do for somebody to say, I will not support you in something that's bad for you or something that disrespects me. I will not support you in that. You want to call it tough love? You can. I call it empowerment. I call it allowing the addict to make choices to be resilient. Hmm. Because if you're going to keep enabling an addict, how do they know they can stop? Hmm. How do they know what they're capable of in a positive way? So we have to give them a fighting chance of recovery by saying, this is not okay. It's not acceptable anymore. And yes, I guess it has a tinge of tough love. But, mm. but, the, fam- but the families I work with who do it that way, the, the results are just amazing. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. And I, and, I, and I will say that it was, and I thank God for this every day that my son did overdose. It wasn't on a pain. It wasn't on heroin because he, he couldn't get it that day. But he did overdose and we got him to um, the hospital and before he was released, I, that was my mo- that was the moment where I, I did say to him, you, you can't come home. You can't live like this anymore. So you're either going to rehab or get yourself on that bus out there and I'll get you your stuff. But yeah. um, yeah. It, 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 I'm very grateful that I had that opportunity and of course, in hindsight, I know I waited too long. I let distraction and denial, you know, get in there. I, I enabled, uh, yeah. you know, you don't expect to find yourself in that situation. But I also am 10 years now, 11 years. David is, is clean and sober 11 years. Mm. And I'm that far away from it. And thankfully, the, that world has become much more open and available to us in terms of help, in terms of conversation, in terms of destigmatizing it to the point where people say, Hey, if, you know, if it look at me, if it could happen to me, it could happen to anybody, any family, yes. to any family. And mm-hmm. it does, you and know, 99.999% of people, I think are either affected by somebody else's addiction or they know someone who they is, or someone. they're the addict themselves. It's that yeah. rampant, but you know, I, I don't want to hear you shaming yourself. We, we don't know what we don't know until mm-hmm. we know it. Mm-hmm. And, right. and, and our mistakes are what we learn from as, as horrible as they are sometimes. Um, and I've said this to people before that if I could only figure out how to build a time machine <laughs> so we could bring people back so they could change what they did. I would be like the richest person on the planet. Boy, people would be lining right? up to, you know, <laughs> but it just doesn't work that way. So when we know what we know and the sooner we know it, the better, but when we know what we know, what we need to know, then we need to take action because if we don't, our self-respect takes a hit. Mm. And self-respect right. is the most important thing we have or don't have, in my opinion. I lived with it, for, uh, sorry, without it for a really long time. And I live with it now and it's just not negotiable anymore. Well, no way. Good words. So much for this conversation. This has been, um, despite the fact that I am so many years kind of removed, it's been very enlightening for me. And I know it will be enlightening for our audience. So please tell everybody, Candice, where they can find you and get your book. Okay. So my, my book, I'll just hold it up one more time. My book, Loving an Addict, Loving Yourself. It's the top 10 tips for, um, what is it? The top 10 survival <laughs> tips for loving someone with an, my head was full of things for loving someone with an addiction is on Amazon in every country that has Amazon. It blows my mind that there are some countries that don't, but um, it's in libraries. If it's not in your library, um, ask them to order it. So, you know, and um, it, it's also as an audio book 
and I've read it. I'm the one that reads it. So um, my company is called Love With Boundaries because we need to love with boundaries. If it's unconditional, as like a lot of people like to think, unconditional love, I think that's a problem. Hmm. I think that self-respect has to be in there for the other person as well as yourself. So it's lovewithboundaries.com. And we offer a a free 30-minute consultation over Zoom or phone, usually at Zoom. Um, So I have this wonderful intake worker who, um, you know, she'll talk to you and find out more about you and your situation. She'll tell you how we can help you. And then we see whether we go from there or not. It's, there's no obligation if you do the 30 minute consultation with us. And all you have to do is fill out a short questionnaire telling us a little bit about why you, you want this. And, um, and that's on the website at lovingandaddict.com. Okay. Uh, no, I uh, love with boundaries. I've got two websites, sorry. <laughs> Lovewithboundaries.com. That's the one you want to go to. Great. Candace, thank you so much for joining us today. You have uh, provided some inspiration and some very practical information, which can help people who very often are feeling desperate. So we thank you for that. I'm going to turn it over to my partner who always takes us out with all the important stuff that I forget. <laughs> Thanks, Candace, for for quite an an eye and heart opening conversation. I know it's going to help a lot of people. And for those of you that are are looking for additional resources to reset, rise, and reveal your brilliance, go to brilliantlyresilient.net. Make sure you sign up for our wildly popular brilliance bit. It is our most outrageous percentage of opens of all the stuff we send. You guys love this thing and we love that you love it. You get a a bit of brilliance from each of our guests every week sent right to your inbox to keep living brilliantly resilient. We'll see you next time. Thank you. Bye. Bye everyone. Thanks for tuning in to the Brilliantly Resilient podcast. Join our Facebook group and follow us on YouTube to be inspired with tools to reset, rise, and reveal your brilliance.